The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That last forever Know His hope And sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know That He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. As stated in an earlier episode discussing types and shadows, when we study all of Scripture, we tend to see that indeed God seems to create all things according to a pattern which testifies of Him. As we continue to look and study the visible and invisible things of creation, we are able to increasingly see God's reflection to some degree in that mirror. When these examples occur within Scripture, we characteristically refer to them as types or shadows. We shall also see that ultimately, as with all Scripture, that these types and shadows point to the substance, which is Jesus. In this episode, we continue our study of types and shadows with part two of the story of Joseph and his brothers. In this episode, we continue where we left off in Genesis chapter 37, verse 15, which says, quote, And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? Unquote. 
Now, while the words certain man appear several times in the Old and New Testaments, the use of these words in connection to Joseph looking for his brethren in the field deserves closer examination, particularly in recognition with the series of events which are to follow. Matthew chapter 21 verses 33 through 39, Mark chapter 12 verses 1 through 8, and Luke chapter 20 verses 9 through 15 presents a striking correlation given by Jesus himself. Quote, then began he to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, and he led it forth to husbandmen, and went into a far country for a long time. And at the season he sent a servant to the husbandmen that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandmen beat him and sent him away empty. And again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, and entreated him shamefully, and sent him away empty. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and cast him out. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be that they will reverence him when they see him. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? In the above parable, Jesus obviously used the vineyard as a type of the world created, i.e. planted by God. The fruit of the vineyard is the type of the world of his chosen who will believe and bring forth good fruit, i.e. righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. The certain man is God who created the world and who sustains it. The husbandmen in Jesus' parable are those type of the religious leaders, i.e. the teachers, prophets, priests, rabbis, pastors, etc., whose ostensible profession was to care for the vineyard. They were to water, tend, till, prune, and care for the vineyard and its fruit. The servants are those teachers, prophets, priests, rabbis, pastors, etc., who came to hold the husbandmen to account for the vineyard and its fruit. Like many of the prophets and men of God prior to Jesus' time, the husbandmen ridicule, mock, beat, imprison, and kill those whom they disagree. As a last resort, the Lord of the field, i.e. God the Father, sent his beloved Son, i.e. Jesus Christ, to put things in order. But rather than having respect and reverence for Jesus, the religious leaders of his time conspired to kill Jesus by crucifying him. Now, while the use of the words, quote, unquote, certain man in these two stories is not a slam dunk, the numerous identifying similarities leave little doubt between the type and the substance. In both instances, we see God the Father who in this story is represented by Israel, sending Jesus, represented by Joseph, to his brothers, representing the remaining house of Israel, 
and by extension all God's people, to check on the status of the flock, i.e. God's elect. The flock in Joseph's story is another image for the vineyard and its fruit. As in Jesus' parable, the use of the term, quote-unquote, beloved son, is exactly the same term used to describe Israel's relationship with Joseph. Likewise, the expectation by God the Father that Jesus would or should be reverenced is no doubt the same expectation which Israel had of Joseph in regard to his brethren. We also see in Jesus' parable that the husbandmen saw Jesus coming and conspired to kill him the same way Joseph's brothers did with him. Ultimately, in both cases, the brethren take their brother in the type Joseph, who attempted to kill, and in the substance, Jesus, whom they did kill. In verse 23, we read, quote, And it came to pass, when Joseph was come under his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him, unquote. Verse 23 echoes Matthew chapter 27, verse 35 and 36, which says, quote, and they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it may be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots, and sitting down they watched him there." Unquote. So in our story, Joseph was stripped of his coat of many colors by his brethren. Once again, Joseph's coat was the symbol of Joseph being Israel's beloved son, just as in Joseph's case, Jesus, the substance of Joseph, possessed a coat of many colors representing his position of royalty, right, of inheritance, love, and majesty. Clearly, Joseph's brethren, like the brethren of Jesus, wanted to humiliate, ridicule, and shame him. In both cases, the brethren believed that by depriving their victim of their clothing, that they could deny the status and office of the wearer. In Joseph's case, the brethren believed that they had satisfied themselves that they had succeeded in their goals, but they were ultimately disappointed. In Jesus' case, many knew or suspected that they were mistaken. The remainder of mankind will know the truth at his return. Matthew chapter 24 verse 30 says it this way, quote, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, unquote. Returning to our story, verse 24 says, quote, And they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it, unquote. Looking at the Aramaic Targums, we see the addition saying, quote, The pit was empty, no water was therein, but serpents and scorpions were in it, unquote. Now, the fact that serpents and or scorpions were there is almost a virtual certainty since there are virtually thousands of caves, pits, and empty wells throughout the Middle East, and they are ideal places for snakes, scorpions, and spiders. 
This unspoken fact, left out of the narrative, if true, likely demonstrates another type and substance. As you will recall, the overall desire of Joseph's brethren was to kill him, as voiced in Genesis chapter 37, verse 20. Quote, Come now, therefore, and let us slay him, and cast him into some pit, and we will say some evil beast has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. Unquote. Upon hearing these plans, Reuben responds in verses 21 and 22 as follows, quote, And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands, and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands, to deliver him to his father again, unquote. This verse raises a classic question. If the pit held potentially venomous snakes, scorpions, and or spiders inside, and Reuben and his brethren knew that, then how could they throw Joseph into the pit and Reuben have any guarantee that he might later rescue Joseph and return him to their father unharmed? I believe that the answer here is that God is working behind the scenes, orchestrating thoughts, actions, and outcomes in this incident to facilitate demonstrating a clear type and its substance yet to be fulfilled in time. Like the remaining ten of Joseph's brothers, Israel's descendants for the most part hated and rejected their brother Jesus, who is the substance of Joseph. Like Joseph, Jesus would be the instrument of their salvation and redemption, but they plotted to kill him for all of his prophetic statements. Reuben likely represents the minority of his Jewish brethren, Reuben doesn't fully understand Joseph and his destiny any more than some of the Jews who listened to Jesus with an open ear understood his full purpose and destiny. Yet, like Reuben, there were those Jews during Jesus' time who did openly speak and or act in an effort to spare Jesus from being unjustly killed. In the end, the consensus was to throw Joseph into a pit just as it was the consensus to kill Jesus and throw him into the grave. In this analogy, the pit represents death, Hades, and the grave. The serpents and scorpions represent the sure and certain sting, which is the result of death. Genesis chapter 37, verses 25 through 28 says this, quote, And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh." And his brethren were content, and they passed by Midianite merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit, and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt, unquote. 
First of all, the fact that Joseph's brothers, quote, sat down to eat bread, unquote, while Joseph was in the pit, i.e. the type of death, reminds us that Jesus' brothers, Israel, sat down to eat the Paschal meal while Jesus was in the grave. As with the above verses, Jesus, like Joseph, was sold by one of his brethren, i.e. Judas Iscariot, for the price of silver. Joseph was handed over to strangers without regard for his welfare to slavery or even the possibility of death. At first glance, it may seem that our type does not exactly fit since Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver, while Jesus was sold for 30. But the underlying fact is that in Jesus' day, 30 pieces of silver was the going rate and cost of a slave while in Joseph's day, 20 pieces of silver was the going rate for the cost of a slave. So in both cases, the type is consistent, depicting Jesus' role as a voluntary servant according to Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, which says, quote, But made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, unquote. Secondly, silver spiritually signifies atonement or redemption. Verse 31 and 32 say, quote, And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no, unquote. Here in the above verses, we see another type of the atonement by way of Joseph. Initially, Joseph found himself thrown into a pit, which is clearly indicative of death and hell, which is the just reward for sin. In the type, we might argue that Joseph did have sin, given he was only a man. While Jesus, on the other hand, was both God and man, and had done nothing worthy of death. In our story, as Joseph is pulled out, his brothers kill a young goat and dip Joseph's coat in the blood. This again clearly shows the correlation between the shedding of blood and the remission of sins. Since the penalty for sin is death, only death will suffice to release the sinner from the debt which they are due. In the case of Joseph, Joseph's brethren are seen taking Joseph's coat to their father to demonstrate Joseph's supposed death via the blood of the goat which was present. In the case of the substance, Jesus, it is Jesus himself who ascends to the father after his death and resurrection and presents himself to the father as a propitiatory sacrifice on our behalf. In that transaction, Jesus brings his priestly robe of many colors, stained with his own shed blood, to do mediation with the Father on our behalf. In case any doubt to the connection remains, examine Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 13, which say, quote, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, 
and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God." Unquote. In our story here, Joseph would have died in the pit left to his own devices. Joseph had no way of helping himself in the pit. Like Joseph, we, one and all, sit hopeless on our own in the pit, death. God had a plan for Joseph and his brethren, just as God has a plan for all of us. Joseph did not know the plan any more than we do. In this case, God had already planned to rescue Joseph from the pit before Joseph ever saw the pit. Ultimately, God planned for Joseph's brethren to pull him out of the pit and turn him over to the Midianites. Likewise, God placed the idea in their minds to slay the kid goat and dip Joseph's coat in the blood to pretend Joseph's death. In doing so, Joseph's brethren, by God's inspiration, gave us yet another foreshadowing of the way by which we all escape death in the pit. Ultimately, Joseph is sent to Egypt, which, as we learned in the series, Moses the Deliverer is a type of sin. Once in Egypt, Joseph proceeds to become the instrument of deliverance of Egypt, i.e. sin, and his brethren from death. As we enter chapter 38, it is interesting to note that chapter 37 ends with Joseph being sold to the Midianites for 20 pieces of silver at the suggestion of his brother Judah. Judah's role in this matter brings several things of pertinence to focus as they relate to our unfolding type. First, it must be remembered that Judah is the head of what was to become the priestly line it was the priests who contracted with Judas to deliver Jesus to them for 30 pieces of silver. It was the religious elite and priests who sought to persecute, try, crucify, and kill Jesus to protect their own interests rather than to submit to God's plan for them. Thus, as chapter 37 ends, we see Judah's plan resulting in Joseph being sold to the Midianites, who in turn sold them unto Potiphar, who is an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard. Surely it is no small coincidence to see the same cavalier wheeling and dealing with the religious elite politicians and Jesus in his time. In chapter 38, we see the consequence of Judah's sin towards his brother Joseph. Rather than showing the character becoming the head of the priestly line he was to represent, we read an entire chapter detailing Judah's unseemly behavior with Tamar, who pretended the role of a prostitute. If Judah is the type of the priestly elite, the ostensible leaders of God's people, then what do we learn from Judah regarding our type? After Judah made his decision to sell his brother Joseph, his sin finds its natural consequence and we see him devolve to the basest immorality. In scripture, we repeatedly see God using the type of harlotry and prostitution as the imagery which represents those who should, by every definition, know better. This group should be God's elect, 
and as a result should be closer and wiser than those of the world who don't know God. Instead, many times we see God's elect choosing to forget or reject God and serve themselves or other gods. God frequently refers to this behavior as harlotry. This, unfortunately, is the case with Judah, as well as Judah's descendants who were the priestly line. Judah and his line, like all believers, are called to be separate from the world. This is why the New Testament uses the Greek word ekklesia, which means, quote, the called out ones, unquote. In this sense, God is clearly saying that those who are his children, his chosen, his elite, are called by him through the Holy Spirit to separate themselves from their situation, their place, and their condition to be a new creation in him by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This new creation condition is a relationship no different than a marriage. It is a contractual agreement between the groom, Christ Jesus, and the bride, which is the church comprised of each individual believer. In this relationship, Jesus is faithful to maintain spiritual fidelity and a loving, caring relationship between each believer and himself. There's no greater concern or effort on Jesus' part than to carefully tend to the welfare of his beloved bride. While this is eternally the case on the part of Jesus, let us be honest in admitting that it is frequently not the case on our part. While Jesus gave his life through the death of the cross for his bride, the level of devotion and sacrifice on our part falls lamentably short of what it should be in response. Like any bride who is truly in love with her groom, we should be making it our responsibility to demonstrate our unfailing fidelity, concern, and devotion to him. Instead, like Judah and his descendants, we often sell Jesus out for other concerns, personal, professional, or political. Jesus is often inconvenient and sometimes embarrassing to our worldly sensibilities. While we say to ourselves and to others that we will never forsake him, we, like Peter, forget him, or worse, we deny him. Instead of being happily joined in committed marriage to our Lord, we leave him and instead join ourselves in harlotry with other loves of the world. This situation of harlotry has many levels. Obviously, we can commit unfaithfulness on a personal spiritual level by making anything on earth or in heaven crowd out or replace God. What holds true for the individual also holds true for the group, whether it be a people or a church. Such was the case with Judah. Both Judah and his descendants in large abandoned their intended relationship with Jesus and preferred the cares, concerns, and relationships of tradition, the world, position, and politics. When they did so, the same people who abandoned Jesus later began to deteriorate into spiritual apostasy.
The good news is that God is not done with his people. We, his people, whether we are talking about Israel or the church, must confess that we have all at one time or another abandoned him to commit unfaithfulness, just as Romans chapter 3, 23 declares. But whether we are talking generically or specifically, we must remember that as it is declared via the type in this story, God is working towards reconciliation. We, like Joseph's brethren, have made it necessary via our rebellion and sin that like Joseph, Jesus, who is the substance of Joseph, would have to be sent to his brethren to do the will of the Father, i.e. Jacob, who sent him to seek us out and deliver us. Although Joseph's brothers saw Joseph coming in a prophetical expectational sense, because Joseph, i.e. Jesus, came in the role of a suffering Messiah, and not a conquering king at that time, Joseph's brethren hated Joseph and rejected him. As a result, they sought to kill him by throwing him into the pit of death. But Jesus had other plans. Jesus suffered death, but he was raised out of the pit just as Joseph was. As Israel fell into spiritual apostasy, Joseph as the type of Jesus, begins the process in our story where his brethren, God's people, are preserved, protected, and ultimately reconciled to the loving arms of the Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus. Father, we thank you that your word paints so many pictures throughout that by and through them we might better fully comprehend the beauty of who you are and what you have done for those you love and have chosen. I pray that these types would serve to continue to give substance of the message of the good news that by your mercy, via grace through faith in Jesus, who is the substance, that we can, will, and are reconciled to fellowship with you by Jesus' completed work. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. Now, if you have any questions about the Bible, God, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.